Are you looking for adventure? Do you want to find peace? Long-distance trails offer you freedom and discovery. They offer a way to connect to yourself and to the world around you at the same time. The most popular trails have become crowded, but there are so many other trails that have plenty of space. The Trails Around the World podcast is here to introduce you to new trails and to new types of trails and to expand your horizons. Join me as we explore, finding out what is possible and how to do it. Welcome back. This episode is part two of the interview with Amy and James about Japan's Tokaishi Zenhodo. In part one, we discussed what the trail is like, what traveling in Japan is like, and Amy and James' backgrounds. In part two, we will compare the Tokaishi Zenhodo to some other trails, discuss the logistics of hiking the trail in much more depth, and learn about how Amy and James find new trails to hike. We rejoin the conversation now as we were delving into comparisons of the Tokaishi Zenhodo to other trails. How did the Tokaishi Zenhodo compare to places, to other places where you have adventured before? So that question is, is a little bit hard to answer because what's important to me both within one trip and across a year or five or 10 years of trip is diversity. So what I'm really looking for is something that's different than where I've been in the past. So how it compares is that it's really different from anything else. And in that sense, it's fantastic. That's, that's the most important thing. Within the hike itself, there's a lot of diversity. You're down in the coastal plain in rice fields and little tiny solar farms and very tiny little restaurants and traditional buildings and convenies. And then you're back up in the hills and then you're in tea plantations and then there's big major important temples and little shrines. So it's every mile feels like you're seeing something new. And I would say in terms of diversity within one hike, it ranks quite high compared to other trips that we've taken. Mm -hmm. And the other thing for us, of course, is that a diverse hike in, say, Great Britain, you're still dealing with a culture that you basically understand. Yeah, they have castles. We don't have castles in the U.S. But it's people, you understand the language, you can read the text, you understand the history, where Japan is such an alien culture to a Westerner in yes. terms of we, know, we most Westerners know very little about Japanese history. We know very little about Japanese religion and the role it plays in their culture. And one of the things that we learned on this trip of looking at these temples is that there's just enormous numbers of different sects in Japan. And each one has their own temple and each, one, each of these temples is slightly different than the last one because it's been set up by monk B leaving um, sect A and saying, I want to do things slightly different, so I'm going to go build my own temple. And that was pretty interesting to figure out when we were there. And so that kind of learning just by seeing is one of the things that makes a walk like this so enjoyable. And then there's the cultural stuff of just on the day-to-day. For us, one of the great discoveries is the convenience stores and yeah. how easy it made to, to walk there and do resupply. They were, we loved those things. They were absolutely fabulous. And it's not like a convenience store in the U S they're very different. And for us in a big day is when you find, Oh, look on the map, there's, there's going to be a, a family mart right up ahead. That's perfect. Yep. And we really loved those things and the people who worked in there were great and friendly and helpful and very tolerant of all the faux pas we made. And uh, so that, that kind of experience is different than going to a place where it's a little different, but kind of similar and you can figure it all out immediately. And it kind of says, Oh yeah, this is just like, like at home, except they drive on the other side of the road. This, this is very different. Japan is extremely different than other places. Have you hiked at all on the Appalachian Trail? And, and let me say that my, I asked this question because when you described the scenery and such, Jim, earlier, it did make me think a little bit of criticisms of the Appalachian Trail in terms of an endless green tunnel. Yes. 
And I think this is very different from the Appalachian Trail. So if you're familiar with it at all, let's let's talk a little bit about the differences because a lot of people will know something about the AT. We have not through hiked the AT. We have walked um, a long piece in the southern end that's similar to the AT called the Benton Mackay Trail. Right. Mm-hmm. Benton Mackay was a forester. He was the person who designed the AT. And the Benton Mackay Trail starts in Georgia and goes up through Tennessee and parts of North Carolina and was the original alignment of the AT. Mm -hmm. We chose to walk that very early in the spring when things were just starting to leaf out so we could experience an eastern spring. Mm -hmm. We walked the nor- ascent- equivalent of the northern end, and we walked the Long Trail in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the Long Trail um, overlaps a piece of the AT in southern Vermont, but extends all the way up to the Canadian border. Right. And we walked that in the autumn to take advantage of the just beautiful colors. I agree with you. The rest of the AT walking for however long it takes through just endless eastern deciduous forest to us would probably be boring after a while and we've never felt a need to do it i know people enjoy it i think partly because of the social experience that's right i certainly don't want to denigrate the the trail but it's not something that has ever said wow we really need to through hike that entire Mm -hmm. thing i've in addition to the two trails that Jim just mentioned. I've done some hiking in the Appalachians. I grew up in the Midwest. And this is much more diverse than the Appalachian. Um, the mount, the, the vegetation in the mountains is a pretty good percentage of it is forest, is forestry tracks. So that within the tract is not, but you're up and down touching into the coastal plain and then back up in the hills and then down into valleys. And even in the hills, there are temples and shrines, abundant temples and shrines, providing really uh, interesting visuals as well as cultural uh, little sort of snippets, little tiny shrines with a sense that, well, I'm, in, I'm really in Japan. This is not like hiking anywhere else. So I, uh, my sense is it's much more diverse within the trail than the and uh, you mentioned temples and shrines, and one should point out that they are everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, and they are very exotic feeling for a foreigner. And specifically, you say temples and shrines, which is exactly correct. Temples are Buddhist. Shrines are Shinto. Japan is very unusual in having two religions coexisting that most people, almost everyone, every Japanese, belongs to both of those religions and follows both of those religions. And they're very different religions, (laughs) and yet they exist at the same time, and people follow both. And you'll often see temples and shrines on the same mountain (laughs) in different places, and they serve different functions in people's really religious lives. So one of the things yeah. that's interesting about them is the vast majority of them, there's no one there. Mm-hmm. Very few of the, the, the temples and shrines that we visited actually had people who were in attendance in that place. Mm-hmm. You can see that they're maintained. Yep. They, they must be used occasionally but the vast majority of them, you'd be there and you'd be the only people. And so that felt, that was interesting to us. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're passing through a Shinto shrine, any other hikers that are passing through, many of the Japanese will pay their respects to the God, ring the bell, clap, bow, and make a small offering. We were, we were taught how to do that properly. We met a Japanese hiker who took an interest in us mm-hmm. at a shrine. And he um, spoke enough English that he was able to explain some of the rituals to us, which made it much more interesting. Yeah. And one could ask almost any Japanese person and they would probably show you. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly developing some relationship with someone uh, in that way is, is much more rewarding. 
So let's get a little bit into the logistics here. When when did you undertake the trail? We walked it in April in May of 2018. And we alluded to earlier that the summers are hot. Spring was a fabulous time to do this. We chose the time we did it because we expected most or if not all of the snow would be gone in the mountains and it proved to be so we had very little snow to deal with but before it got hot and humid and the cicadas came out and made a huge racket we understand that it's also a good thing to do in the autumn Mm -hmm. but um, this worked out for us in terms of our scheduling you want to be before the rainy season in late May, June. And if you do it in the autumn, you probably want to be after ty- typhoon season, which can stretch into early October. So June to September is probably not the time. And December to February or March is probably not the time. There are high enough mountains that if they were snow covered, you'd have to deal with snow camping and potentially have to carry snowshoes or skis to be able to cross some of the passes. Yeah, and it would be a terrible, terrible ski route because you're on these long, steep stairways that would be yeah. not, not right for skiing. Not really right for snowshoeing either. You, you, you would probably run into a situation that would be difficult to get through and you might have to just just back off. If you were a really serious snow person, you could handle it without a problem, but I think it would take a lot of the fun out of it. My general impression is that the altitude runs at about, say, a few hundred meters up to a little over a thousand meters, which would be uh, like a thousand feet to four thousand feet. Yeah, I don't remember specifically, but that sounds about right. If you've looked at it more recently, you would have Better data. Well, it gets it gets pretty low in some of the coastal plains. Right. Where, yeah. um, you're down where it's flat, and you're probably only a few hundred meters, I would guess, in some places. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I, I said that partly to emphasize that a good deal of it is up at close to a thousand meters. Yes. And that's three thousand feet. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it should not be underestimated in that way. We actually had snowfall, small amounts of snowfall on a couple of occasions while we were walking it. Not enough to cause any problems, but it was, this was in May even. Right. You mentioned that you're retired, so time constraints were not really there, and you always build in uh, extra time on a trip like this. And actually, as you mentioned on your blog, you uh, or your webpage, you, you did another small through hike after this. Um, so how long was this trip in terms of both distance and time? Um, we, the route that we, we walked, um, which was one of the variations was about 590 miles and it started in Osaka and we ended up in one of the suburbs of Tokyo and we were on the trail for 36 days. So 590 miles would be about a thousand kilometers. Almost a thousand kilometers. Yeah. What have we missed in terms of cultural or historical factors that you would want to mention about this trail? Yeah. So, so neither of us, we have really just a surface understanding. Having done some business with Japanese colleagues, we have a little bit of an understanding of some of the cultural differences, but a lot of the cultural experience was just seeing day-to-day life as opposed to um, substantial, important, historical kinds of things. One of my favorite parts of the whole trip were the manhole covers. And I had no idea going to Japan that I would be so thrilled by manhole covers. So the cultural differences and the things of importance culturally that we could absorb and understand and see were really in many ways mundane cultural differences, not substantial cultural, you know, historical or religious kinds of things. Manhole covers, we shopped someplace where the woman used an abacus, Mm -hmm. which I had no idea people were still using an abacus. They Um, are. (laughs) 
you could do whole other podcasts and books and series of books about the culture of Japan that we don't understand that we probably were exposed to, but had no knowledge of what was going on because we don't speak the language. But I wanna emphasize that just the day-to-day cultural differences are so thrilling to, to experience. There are, along the route that we took, there are two cultural sites that we spent some time, we took some time off from walking to, to visit. The first comes very soon. We, we started in Osaka and went to Tokyo. And a few days after you leave Osaka, you come to the outskirts of Kyoto. And Kyoto is, is definitely a tourist site, but it was well worth going into town. We just dropped off the trail and spent a day visiting some of the sites in Kyoto. And that is extremely interesting. I had been there before, spent a couple of days, and it was nice to see the place again. And the other thing Amy mentioned earlier, visiting the Miho Museum. This is an absolutely world-class museum. It's off route, but not by far. And so we just modified our trail to take it in. It's on the map. So if you choose to do it, it's easy to do. And we spent a half a day there and is well worth the diversion. The other major cultural thing that you see, of course, is Fuji. And the trail circumvents the north side of Fuji. It does not attempt to climb it. And climbing Fuji in the wrong season is not something that's recommended. Not at all. But you you get to see the mountain from many sides for many days. Yes. And this, of course, is one of the major symbols of Japan and is a highly revered place. I have friends who've climbed Fuji in the winter, and I those same friends have had friends die while climbing Fuji in the winter. Mm. I would also say um, I've climbed Fuji twice. And just since people who do this route are going to think of climbing Fuji, I will tell you, it, you might do it just because um, uh, it's it's a thing to do and everybody who knows you're a hiker and knows you've been to Japan will ask whether you've climbed Fuji. Um, it is not the best use of your time. It is a really boring climb. And when you climb Fuji, you're looking down on everything else. Uh, the most beautiful thing around is Fuji. So the... My recommended way of doing this is to climb one of the other mountains, for instance, the second highest mountain in Japan, Kitadake, which is just to the west of that in Yamanashi Prefecture, from the summit of which you can watch the sun rise behind Fuji. And it's much less crowded. The logistics are probably easier because Fuji has become so regulated and there are no regulations concerning going up Kitadake as far as I know. So... That's just one suggestion, but if you want to hit the high mountains in Japan, Fuji is not really the way to do that. It's just one mountain that stands out apart from others. Uh, So if you're a person who is into hiking high mountains, then that's probably not the place to go, unless it's just something you need to check off on your list uh, so that you can answer that question. Everything that I've read about climbing Fuji says it's really a beautiful mountain to observe from a distance. It is a beautiful mountain to observe, but going up it, it's you and 5,000 of your closest friends in a long line. Yep. So moving on from Fuji, did you use any equipment for this hike that is different from your usual equipment that you carry? No, this is a very typical long distance walk for us where we are resupplying on a regular basis. And so mm-hmm. we, and we're camping every night and it's in the mountains. So we just took the same kind of backpacking trip equipment that we take anywhere else. Right. And your gear list is on your website. If people are further interested in that, what was your base weight? Um, between 11 and 12 pounds somewhere in that right yeah. for a trip like this is a, usually a little bit heavier than for a, a local backpacking trip because we're usually carrying a, a field guide for the birds so that adds you know and uh, 
extra documents like passports and so forth. But other than that, it's all the same stuff. That said, to translate for people who don't work in pounds, that's five or five and a half kilos, which puts you uh, in the category of ultralight hikers and people who are beginning or getting into this and looking at this as an as an early hike to do uh, should understand that uh, the normal hiking pack is probably 15 or 20 pounds i.e. 7 to uh, 7 to 10 kilos and the many beginning backpackers would be closer to 15 kilos <laughs> and uh, we all learn to reduce our weight over time so the fact that you've reduced it so far down speaks to the fact that you have so much experience but also helps if people listen to the mileages that you do 15 20 miles a day in other words 20 30 kilometers a day of hiking or even or even closer to 40 on a, on the occasion to understand that you're carrying well under 10 kilos when you do this and and that that's a key part of being able to do that sort of mileage and also going back to our earlier conversation you talked about not pushing yourselves in terms of speed and using the strategy of walking longer hours so you're up early in the morning and you don't set up the tent until just before sunset and that entire time in between you can be moving and even at a slow pace that adds up to a lot of miles if you use your entire daylight period to to hike our walking pace is quite consistently about two miles right which is a very a very leisurely yeah it's just over three kilometers an hour yes. japan being so steep i imagine there were places where the the fact that you were going up and down staircases uh, affected that speed. Yeah. It, it, it might be helpful to other people. We, if we're on a trail that's not steep, that may be up and down, but where your stride is still a, a normal walking stride, for many years we have averaged on pretty much every trip 18 miles. Mm -hmm. And on this trip we averaged 16 miles a day. Mm -hmm. So everything else was the same. We always get up really early and we hike at a pretty leisurely pace. So that sort of a you know, 10 or 15% stair climbing penalty. <laughs> yep. And, and to put it in perspective, I think the Vermont Long Trail, our average pace might have been 14 or 15 miles. So that one is, is also quite rough walking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were. I think we averaged a little bit more on the Tokai. I'd have to go back and look at. If somebody else were planning a trip and trying to gauge how much time they need, that might be helpful information. And the other thing you need to pay attention to is the day length, because day lengths vary enormously in places and times of year. And so, since we basically work walk from dawn to dusk. If it's a 10-hour day, we have 10 hours of walking. And if it's a 14-hour day, we have 14 hours of walking. Yep. So uh, that will also affect how you plan your trip. Well, and if one comes to hike in Japan, early on in the hike, if you're planning things out, one needs to understand that Japan does not have daylight savings and does not uh, does not have the same concept of when daylight should be it seems that many other countries do so uh the the sun almost always sets by 6 p.m but sometimes of the year it seems to come up at 4 a.m um, and the japanese however aren't necessarily an early rising group but the sun often sets earlier than you would expect and so as a hiker uh, you're going to want to you're going to expect yourself to to be up and moving very very early on 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 the clock but of course if you're coming from another country you're jet lagged anyway when you arrive and so you you will adjust your clock as you arrive but it just in those in that first week uh one has to be careful of of that 
um, difference in how the how the, the clock works. Your point is well taken because if we were getting up and walking by sunrise, if we were in an area that was settled, the streets were completely deserted. There was yep. no one around for the for the first couple of hours. Yep. It's very interesting. Yeah. And the convenience won't be open until seven o'clock or something. <laughs> so well, well, usually, although there's some of them, some of them we found were running essentially 24. Some are 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, those were the best. Because <laughs> yes. breakfast. <laughs> Other thing that is very different in Japan that people will might find a surprise is that there are virtually no public trash receptacles. Oh, yes. And so you cannot expect to be able to just dump your trash. And you will have a lot of it in Japan because packaging is an art form and overdone for everything. And so whatever you buy to eat will have lots of packaging. The convenience stores, again, are the savior because they always have trash cans. Mm -hmm. yes. Other than that, if you walk around the city streets, you will not see public trash receptacles. That is true. And I could spend 20 minutes talking about that subject and why it is and all the rest. But on the flip side, there are clean public toilets everywhere. Unbelievable. The rest of the world needs to learn about how to do toilets from Japan. Yes. Absolutely unbelievable. It it's really is. Just the, the convenience stores there, it's as if a team of through hikers got together and said, what do we need out of a convenience? You know, what do we need out of a stop? And absolutely sparkling clean toilets with heated toilet seats. Exactly. Sometimes little light shows and I, I, that's the start. Yes. Of yeah. Wonders of convenience stores. And those were the, those were the privately owned bathrooms. Yes. The public ones are just as good. Yes. Fabulous. They, they, and they are in the most remarkable places. Sometimes you'll get to a mountaintop and there's a public toilet there. You will be walking down a track in the forest and suddenly there's a public toilet there. Yes. Nobody else around, but it's been cleaned. <laughs> and it is stocked with toilet paper and it does not have soap. They, they never have soap and they never have paper towels, but other than that, they're, they're ready to go. There are not showers available, but other than that. <laughs> so you did camp. Did you camp all the way? Did you stay in Minchkus or other places in some places? We stayed in, at both ends. In a, the rest of it we camped. I think for us, because we just walk all day at an unpredicted pace, we like the flexibility of not um, of just setting up when we, and we did not stay in. The oh. part of the reality of that is that it's not clear in many cases we even could have identified ends that we really don't. We did not understand what a lot of the buildings were. That we even had trouble figuring out ones that were offering that were restaurants that many cases in these small towns there's almost no clues that a place is a place that you can go in and buy a meal they because electricity is expensive many of these buildings many of the proprietors have all their lights off all day unless they have a customer so you see a dark building with a sign in kanji that probably says Joe's Burgers in Japanese, but it would be like coming to the United States and not speaking English and seeing a sign that says Joe's Burgers. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. it, or Kathy's. Yes. Um, it, it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Whereas it obviously means to something to someone if you speak the language. So we actually had a hard time identifying many of the places we went and so what is that is that even a store can we go in and buy something and so and we were a little nervous about going up and just knocking on the door of some place and saying in english to someone who probably doesn't speak english can we get a meal here 
So to be clear about camping, we camp almost exclusively on all of our hikes. So part of it was that we didn't speak the language and we couldn't identify the signs. And as Jim said, we would walk past something that we thought that could well be some sort of inn, but it could also be a sign that says car repair or, you know, honey for sale. But we could have overcome the language barrier if we had been looking for accommodations. Um, but we just prefer to camp. It's the kind of how we like to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's part of what made this and what makes this so doable for someone to repeat that mm. you can, you can fly in, you can take that public transportation using your Google maps and using your track, you can start walking. And I think you'll probably agree with me. The confusion you're talking about does not extend to convenies or, or supermarkets. Oh, no, you no, can, no. Oh, you can always identify those. <laughs> those are brilliant. Yes. Well, um, they're labeled in English, most of them anyway. Exactly. They're labeled in English. And, and in fact, the and word English. that people use, you know, you could ask for a marketo or a convini, and those are words taken from English. And, the person would point you in the right direction that you asked and you're there. So we camped every night except for the, in the cities at the ends. How would you describe the camping? So it's interesting in the United States, we understand the rules and the cultural norms for camping. You know, we never camp on private land. And when we camp on public land, we know where it's legal. And when we camp, in a park that doesn't allow camping, we understand that we're breaking the rules. When we travel in a foreign country, we rarely know what the official rules are. And in a country where we can speak the language, we can ask in shops or ask passerby or ask somebody in parks where would be a good place to camp. In Japan, we didn't have the language skills and frequently we didn't see people for hours at a time. So we approach it that it is, we just assume that it would be inappropriate to camp there because we don't know that's the, that's the approach we take. And so we follow not just leave no trace camping, but don't be seen camping. We eat, eat our picnic meal before we set up the tent. We wait until sunset. We find a place that's as discreet as possible. We don't make noise. We don't have fires. We don't have stoves. We don't have dogs. We don't leave trash. Um, and then we break camp before the sun comes up. So our goal is to um, not be seen. And we've never had a problem in any country, including Japan. In Japan, there were times when we camped where somebody did come by and they would just wave and nod and we would wave and nod and nobody seemed, nobody seemed to mind. If they did mind, we didn't know that they minded. Thank you. How was the terrain for camping? the places that you found, were they off in the woods or? Because the terrain is so steep, it's not really possible to just go off in the woods and camp. It, it, well, we use a tent, we don't use hammocks. So people who use hammocks would have a different experience. But for us, we were camping nearly always in some place that had been cleared for some purpose. There are a lot of picnic areas uh, I shouldn't say picnic areas. There are a lot of small clearings with a picnic shelter and a picnic table along the trail. They're, they don't appear to be set up for camping, but they're often um, very suitable for camping in terms of having enough space to set up a tent. So that would be a fairly typical campsite, would be in the woods, but in something that had been cleared as a picnic area. Uh, but to be clear, there are times when we were in more developed areas. Yes. And we would poke around until we find a place that just seemed like, okay, there's not going to be anybody here. So uh, we spent a night uh, on the edge of a football pitch. It was a, kind of a quasi-stadium, but there was no one out practicing. There was no one out playing. There was no one wandering around and off the edge of the field and the sort of in the rough behind a, behind a fence. And so you really weren't obvious unless someone happened to walk by seemed fine. We were once in um, some kind of park, don't know exactly what it was, and there was a, a 
tower platform so you could go up and be above some of the trees and it had a nice floor on top and it just seemed like hey this be a good place to set up a tent and so we set up our tent up there and there was no one again that we didn't see anybody so it's very opportunistic it's where, where can we set up that'll have minimal impact where can we set up where we won't be in someone's face and it's 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 mostly just common sense yeah saying okay you know is this does this seem reasonable listening but, to that it seems like you have a freestanding tent yes yes yeah absolutely absolutely and would you yeah. recommend that it's also uh, not bright orange, so it's discreet and yeah. it's not huge. As she says, we don't we don't cook, which is another thing. We just we we never cook on our backpacking trips, so we're not carrying stove, and we're not sending lots of odors around, and we're not the sort of the clanking in pots and all that kind of thing. Right. Uh, the freestanding tent for this trip was very helpful because we were often in a in a picnic, uh, oh, I'd have to look at the details, but I can think of three or four times just off the top of my head where we were in a picnic shelter, just mm-hmm. on the floor of a picnic shelter. And yeah. just um, and we like to sleep in the tent to keep bugs out. So we right. always have the tent. Any problems with wildlife? <laughs> Once. There's... Um, an animal that is called in English in Japan, a raccoon dog. Tanuki. And we, toward the end of the trip, we spent a night in a national park in national park campground. There were probably three or 400 sites in this park. And we were the only people there. The place was completely deserted. It was off season. It was off season. And uh, so we just picked a site and put our tent up and, Apparently, the Tonokis there are know that tents have food in them, and we he tried to get into our tent that night. It's the only time in my experience in, ever ever in camping that we've actually had an ant, a direct animal attack on a tent while we were in it. Yeah. So um, we just picked up, and there were some. Near the campsite, there were some um, rental cabins. cabins. And so we just moved and set up on a cabin and hung all our food from the rafters. And that was the end of that. But I I should say tanuki are less potentially dangerous than a raccoon, (laughs) I think. And one should, uh, the the bears are, I've, I've never encountered one here but they are known for being more aggressive than American black bears. They're about the same size as an American black bear, but the Japanese, I haven't ever heard of a hiker having a problem with a bear here. It's usually people who live out in a remote village and are out alone in the woods, not hiking at the wrong time of day. And there are bear attacks on people in Japan. But I've never heard of it being a problem for hiking. We saw a lot of signs warning about bears. Yes, you do. Yeah. Constantly. Um, and we probably took them maybe not as seriously as we should have. We've traveled in places where people are just basically terrified of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they all, when you tell them you're hiking, they say, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about We've never, ever, ever in 50 years of hiking had a significant wildlife problem. Right. And so maybe we've become, become complacent, but we've hiked in the Sierras also, again for 50 years, and we've never had a bear in camp ever once. And um, we take precautions. Exactly. But... Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't want to tell people don't worry about bears. I would say, you know, it's something you should at least be aware of. They're there. Yeah. And, and, but as you're saying, this is not to say don't take precautions. Hang the food, carry a bear bag. There are a few ways of dealing with the problem, but uh, one wants to try to avoid having food. Uh, the guidance is out there and, and one can find it. We don't need to. belabor the point but there are also some concerns with snakes i've never encountered a poisonous snake here but they are here and 
one of the big ones is uh, uh, there are also wild boar. And my understanding is they're more aggressive than bears and not to be underestimated. But I've encountered them a couple of times and they've always either ignored me or run away. Same for us. Uh, yeah. And then there are Suzume Bashi, Suzume, Suzume Bashi, which recently got to the American Northwest as an invasive species and are referred to in the U.S. as murder hornets. They are bees that are an inch or two long and are aggressive. And I have not had an encounter with them. I hope I never do, but that is now my greatest wildlife concern in this country. I do not ever want to have an encounter with Suzume Bashi. Uh, I can say that there were a few places along the trail where there are actually warning signs that have been posted. About they, yes, I so, encounter those as well. So people are paying attention to where it may be a problem where there are a lot of people outside. Yes. Whether that's consistent along the length of the trail, I don't know. But at least we did there were at least in some places people were aware of it and warning. And one should say, I mean, all of these this trail is a a network of small smaller prefectural trails that are used primarily for day hiking that is that are strung together. So they are actually mostly fairly well used trails and therefore signed and and monitored in the way you're talking about, as I understand it. Do you, yes. did you perceive it the same way? Well, yes and no. Um, that you're, I think you're correct that there were, they, when they established this network of trails, they mostly repurposed existing stuff. And in places, we saw a lot of use, uh, day use by people, that we would run into quite a few families and uh, teenagers and young adults out walking obviously for an hour or two or three, but there were also stretches in, that would go for six or seven, sometimes eight hours in which we would not see another person. Yep. So I think the use varies enormously depending on how close you are to any kind of population center and maybe the time of day or the time of the day of the week in which people are have free time. Yes. It was surprisingly empty of people for long stretches. I think that the way that Japanese life works, that you're going to see usage on the weekends and almost no usage during the weekdays. Exactly. Um, especially in that season. Are there particular skills, knowledge, or abilities that you recommend that people have to undertake this particular adventure or this, this type of adventure? I would say for this particular type of adventure, going to Japan, it's mostly being open to the fact that things are different than you're, what you're used to and to accept and enjoy those differences and not worry about the fact that it's not the way you do it at home. Um, and that's specific to any time you go walking into a place where the culture is different and particularly with a language. And so you're, Entry into that culture is complex. Other than that, I think the thing that I always recommend to people for any trip is learn how to navigate. That's so critical. Learn how to read a map and don't just say, I know where I am because I can look at my phone and I've got a dot. Learn how to read a map. A vanishing skill, unfortunately, but uh, important for this category of, of activity. The rest of it, for most people, you're not going. You're not. You're not climbing. You know, a high peak in the Andes or the Himalaya, where you have to have all sorts of technical skills and survival skills. For most, almost all of the hiking that people who are listening to this going to do, it's walking. It's That's right. Getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other and learning how to set up a tent and learning how to resupply and those kinds of things. But it's not that complex. Mm -hmm. And if you make a mistake, the consequences are usually pretty small. And for a hike like this, most of the mistakes people are going to make is that they, they don't have something that they find they need. And you just go to the next town and buy it if, if it's absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. So 
once you learn how to navigate and feel really comfortable about figuring out where you are and how to get to the next place, you've got most of it. I imagine actually here, uh, if if you did what you did and started in Osaka, by the time you reached Kyoto after two or three days, you would have figured out anything that you'd really missed and you could just walk to the outdoor store in Kyoto and any number, I'm, yes. yeah. there are probably dozens there. Uh, I can pretty much guarantee there are dozens in Kyoto and, uh, and buy whatever you need. Absolutely. Yes. They, yeah. they, we're, we're knowing your gear well and how it's used and is, is really important if you're going on a wilderness trip where once you leave the trailhead, you're completely on your own. Then you really should know what you're doing and know how to get out of jams and understand what you need and how things go. But these kinds of walks where you're in and out of um, where places where people live are very, very forgiving and actually a really good way to learn how to hike. Yeah. Well, and particularly in Japan, where the public transportation is such that if you really are lacking something or if your tent is really not serviceable, if you bought a $30 Walmart tent and you've realized that it's not going to work, you can take public transport from any point several times a day that you cross public transport links and get to that Montbell or other outdoor store and buy a tent and be back on trail by that night. So what were the costs for this trip? Um, we spent between 20 and $25 U.S. per person per day, um, and almost all of that was for food. So that doesn't include the cost of getting to Japan or public transit to the trailheads from airports, but everything from the time we started the walk till the time we finished. Now, as we've been alluding, most of the food we ate came either from a grocery store or a convenience store. So we were not eating much in restaurants, which would, of course, jack up that price mm -hmm. some. And we were not paying for places to stay. And there were very few things that we actually paid for to visit on the way. There wasn't much that we needed to buy. We paid for tickets to go to the Mihu and uh, we paid entry fees to some of the temples in Kyoto. But beyond that, there wasn't really much to spend money on. I should actually point out just quickly in relation to that, that uh, restaurant meals in Japan are probably on average cheaper than in the U.S., although you can spend more. <laughs> but the especially lunch is often under $10. Yes. And yeah. I think we ate... We were on the trail for 36 days. I'm going to say maybe 10 meals in restaurants. Yeah. We, in general, when we're hiking, we'll eat at every restaurant that's available. Right. But the timing is not always right. And so we weren't trying to avoid restaurants. They just weren't presenting themselves when we needed. Um, and yes, the food at restaurants was very modestly priced and and good. And the, the differential in Japan between food you buy in a market and food you buy that's in a restaurant is actually a narrower spread. I think in the United States, you might spend four or $5, maybe six on buying lunch from a convenience store. In Japan, it would probably be a good $6. Whereas in Japan, your lunch from a restaurant might be $9 and in the US, it might be 15 uh, so there's actually, you know, if, if it, one shouldn't think that, you know, the prices are so high in Japan, they are for some things and not for other things. And that's, that was <laughs> yeah. And to be clear, when we would go into a place to eat, we did not scrimp. We, we oh, yeah. enjoyed it. <laughs> we, we made no effort to save money on food. So yeah. we, we bought whatever looked like what we wanted to eat. And a lot. Right. <laughs> we ate a lot. We ate a lot. And I, 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 the risk of being repetitive, the convenience stores were absolutely perfect because you can go in and they have lots of sort of things that you can buy that you can eat on the spot. And they always have some hot food available. They have pot stickers and they have sticks of chicken or beef and 
you can buy rice balls and they always have coolers full of, well, really full of beer, if that's what you like. And almost all of them have a counter where you can sit down and just eat in the store and you can recharge your phone while you eat in the store. And if you find you like, you need something else, just go back out there and buy another chicken stick or whatever. Right. Well, Jim, Jim neglected to say that they have food, fresh meals delivered at least once. And I think I was under the impression sometimes twice a day that are full meals, noodle dishes or rice with vegetables or meat or whatever, or soups. And they have microwaves behind the counter. So you pick out what you want to eat. And for us, mm -hmm. it's quite it, advantageous to be able to see what these what is on offer because when we went into restaurants we had absolutely no idea what anything was right and so we would just point to something on the menu having no idea what we were going to be getting because they didn't speak english and we didn't understand the language so in convenience stores we could pick out what meal we wanted and then they heat it up and then they have seats um so it was it was great <laughs> I never would have guessed that convenience stores would be a highlight of the trip. <laughs> and as I, as I mentioned earlier, in general, everybody who worked in them was extremely friendly and tolerant of the gaijin who walked in there kind of stinky, kind of dirty with a big pack and, you yeah. know, watered around their thing and put the wrong, put the money in the wrong place on the counter and, you know, put the basket in the wrong place and, there's a, we learned all sorts of customs that were interesting yeah. and, and how you deal with it. And that, yeah. and that were, I thought, I thought in the end, they were quite fun. Uh, one was that you all, we understood is you always hand them the bills and you hand them in a certain orientation, but any coins, they have a little tray on the counter and you put the coins in the tray. Yep. And it took a while before we figured that out. But yeah, <laughs> well, especially now with the pandemic that has become more, uh, as you might imagine, oh, that's, yeah. so you don't touch each other. You, you put the money in the tray <laughs> and, and they take it from the tray and, and they put the change back in the tray uh, so that there's no physical contact between you. And there's often a plastic screen as there is in other places. So stepping away from talking about the Tokai Shizan Hodo to slightly more general topics. Uh, where do you learn about new trails? How do you learn about new trails? We, there's a couple of websites that we spend a little bit of time on that discuss those things. Backpackinglight.com is a general purpose backpacking site oriented to lightweight backpacking. And there are, they have uh, a lot of trip reports that get published on this. And so I poke through that site occasionally and just see where people have gone. And if there's something that's particularly interesting that we don't know anything about, you can, there's, you can link up and ask the person who wrote the report for more information. Mm -hmm. There is another site, what's it called? The Hiking Life. The Hiking Life, which is published by an Australian guy who has done more walking than anybody else I've ever heard of. And he has done all sorts of walks all over the world and publishes very good summaries of these on a regular basis in which he gives you all the information you need to actually go out and do it. Uh, we have an internet acquaintance named Christine, who goes by the name of German Tourist, who is a woman who in her 30s, I think, very early 40s, on the sort of standard German, you know, work hard, live, you know, a normal life, threw it all in and decided what she wanted to do was spend her life outdoors. And she has hiked all over the world, very, very long walks, walks that extend for thousands of kilometers and has written very interesting reports about these things. And uh, we've become internet friends and share information with her. And she has several number of walks that we've taken had we first heard about from Christine. I spend a lot of time just poking around the web, just seeing what I can find. 
uh, and you'll find a reference to some trail by some name and you kind of track it down. And um, finally, we talk to other people when we're on walks and uh, learn about trails that are they've done that might be interesting. And then we have a lead and we'll go and research it when we get home. Thank you. Amy, did you have anything to add to that? Or is, is Jim the main researcher? Or uh, He's the main researcher. I'll just add one thing, which is Jim mentioned Christine's website. She writes very good summaries. So she hikes, hikes and paddles um, a lot. And she, write, she does sort of website entries that are day by day kind of things. But then she also has a consolidated, you know, for this portion of the trail that went <clears throat> through France, here was my assessment of what it was like and who, would, who this is a good trail for. So we really appreciate her summaries and um, have made a lot of use of her information. Thank you. Of the trails that you have completed, which is your favorite? <laughs> that, was, that was the question that I started to answer and realized that I can't answer because I've liked almost every trail I've walked. There's been something that's memorable. And it's almost like saying, which is your favorite child? It's too much of a commitment. Yep. <laughs> Amy's a little different. Yeah, I have a top 10. I don't have a single favorite, but I, I um, a couple of years ago, I forced myself to make a top 10 list. But I will say she cheats because on her top 10 list, there are 15 trips we've taken to Utah. She just says, Utah. <laughs> and there's 30 trips we've taken to the Sierra Nevada. So she says, the Sierra Nevada. So she, her top 10 list is actually not 10 it's probably closer to 70 or 80 trips. Well, it's three regions and then seven additional trips. Right. And she, I don't think she's updated it for quite a while. So no, I, don't even, I think it's still accurate. Is it? Yeah. So it's, uh, we have an article on our website of my top 10. Yeah. But take it with a big grain of salt. <laughs> well, I, he doesn't like my structure for a top 10, but it's my list. So I'm standing by it. Well, you're very different people, and that, in a sense, is is what makes your website so good. That you have these two different perspectives, and you know you've been married for decades, and you know that the, you're each other's perspectives and and love them, but but they're very different, and so a person can can relate to one or the other and and get a better understanding from the fact that one's getting two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Good, and I'm glad you find it useful. Yeah. So uh, listeners might have figured out that I do give interviewees the questions ahead of time. So that's why we're referring to the fact that you know the question. What is the trail that you dream of doing? Well, it's almost whatever the next trail is on the list that uh, we have. I have a long list of trails that um, we might potentially do. Mm -hmm. uh, we had planned to do a long loop hike in northern New Mexico this spring that uh, isn't well known and that I spent a lot of time both uh, researching using maps and other data and in conversation with the guy who had first put it in. But um, it required resupply in very small towns in New Mexico and with COVID that's not really practical or fair to the people who live in those towns. They don't really need outsiders coming in. And so that got put on the back burner and perhaps next year it will be possible, but it looks like a beautiful walk through the mountains that uh, include Bandelier and Pisa Taos and uh, the Wheeler range and so forth that, uh, is well laid out and has a lot of variety in terrain and habitat. A couple of swim crossings of the Rio Grande River that have to be done. So it's an area that we had traveled through on bicycles years ago and thought was just beautiful. And this new loop looks like it could be a really good walk. Amy? Well, I'll also mention the one that 
we may or may not be able to do based on conditions. Um, we have a plan to to paddle the Sacramento River uh-huh. as soon as next week, and I'm looking forward to it. But as most people have heard, California's had smoke problems. Right. And so we're just monitoring to see when the air quality is good enough to want to be outdoors. Um, But that would be a (laughs) a very fun trip. We don't do much paddling. We've only taken one canoe trip together, but it's, you know, it's the major river in California and it's close to our home and it's doable and would be a fun and interesting change of pace. Mm -hmm. And we'll see if we're able to do it. I mean, we could do it, but I'm not sure it would be enjoyable if it stays as smoky as it's been. Yep. And what is the best way for listeners to find out more about your adventures? Our website is called doingmiles.com. Doing miles is one word. And in there we have individual articles about a large number of trips. And our focus on the website is to provide enough information for someone to go and plan a trip. There's it's not written from the point of view of this is what I did today and this is what I did the next day and this is what I did the following day. It's here are the resources, here are sources of information, here are maps. We include uh, GPX tracks of each map that you can download. Uh, we have a photo gallery so you can get a sense of what we saw on the trips. And we each write an, our own individual assessment of what we felt about that particular trip how did it resonate with us but it's it's very data rich and very chatter thin it's a wonderful website and uh i really appreciate it as as i said i found this trail through your website so much appreciated and listeners who are looking for trails to do which is the focus of my podcast Another good textual source is your website. So, and you've mentioned a couple of others that are also a good source. Backpackinglight.com is a subscription based website, I think. They have some. I think the forums are free. Yes. I think at least okay. reading the forums, if not posting to the forums. I'm not sure. Yeah, but reading the forums is, is, is a free service. All right. They, some of the. Some of the uh, some of the things on the site are free and some are um that sounds uh, right okay yeah. their primary focus their their ultimately their primary focus is gear right and the people who put it together are extremely experienced and very very reputable in the field yeah another site that has some good trip information and a lot of really excellent well thought out gear information uh is called adventureallen.com mhm and so Alan Dixon was one of the founders of Backpacking Light. He's since gone off and does, done his own thing. But he has also a number of uh, useful trip reports and extremely well-researched and thought-out advice on gear, much more so than we do. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Jim and Amy, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful time talking to you and you've given an enormous amount of information and I hope it it helps people to discover this trail um, both people within Japan and outside of Japan to broaden their horizons and and uh, discover new places and and discover this way of accessing Japan that I think very few people think of thank you for the opportunity to I would like to add one more thing please do and that is If after listening to this, people have further questions, they can contact us through the website and we will do our best to answer. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank thank you. you. It's been a lot of fun. Great deal of fun. Thank you again to Amy and James for this wonderful interview. The day after we conducted this interview, I took the train to Minoo myself in northern Osaka and started section hiking the Tokaishi Zenhodo eastbound towards Tokyo. I hiked sections as far as Kyoto by late November and then stopped because the days had become too short to justify the travel time to and from the trailheads on the trains. I planned to restart in February or March of 2021. 
In a continued discussion with Amy and James after this interview, we touched on the fact that a lightweight camping hammock would work well on this trail, as well as revisiting the fact that the trail is maintained by government entities and thus is kept in extremely good condition. Thank you for listening to the Trails Around the World podcast. Please visit us online at trailsaroundtheworld.com and please join our Facebook group under the same name. If you liked this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcast source, such as Apple Podcasts. This is Sky King, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, happy trails to you, and please remember to leave no trace as you enjoy the outdoors.